for joining us, everybody, tonight. We're uh, switching things up a little bit and doing something a little bit different. We are having kind of a, a bit of a book club discussion tonight. We're hoping that everybody tuning in will join us, even if you haven't read the book, and maybe it'll inspire you to, to check it out. We have had Drs. McClure and Reed on previously to talk about hacking deficit thinking, and it really, um, we love them, and they have amazing, thing, like, amazing things to say, and um, so we We've all, you know, been had been interested in the book and said this will be a good, a good. We can do a little bit of a deep dive into there. And as I was reading it too, I was, um, you know, I felt like some of those things, some of the things that I'm reading, I'm like reading it in their voices, and I'm just like I could just picture them saying that, and and <laughs> so it, it was really fun. But anyways, welcome. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to talk about how to participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody. I'm really hopeful that you will participate actively tonight because none of us are as skilled at book study as all of us. And so um, if you can log right into your YouTube account, you can comment right alongside the video, whether you're watching live or in a little bit later, because your comments will sync right up to the same place in the conversation. And we can either um, come back to them um, later um, after after the broadcast, or we can uh, come. We can include you in the conversation as we go. So we really look forward to any participation. And if you're watching or listening later, um, feel free to also chime in with your thoughts about the book and what you um, heard in the conversation that you want to comment on on either of the Facebook pages, School Psych, your school psychologist or the School Psych podcast page. And you can post right under the um, event or, or, or send us a message as well. And then we're still hanging in there on Twitter and you can tweet at us <laughs> at Podcast Psyched. And if you do, use the hashtag Psyched Podcast and I'll be looking um, for any notifications in all those places. So now I'm gonna hand it over to Eric. Hi, everyone. My name's Eric, and I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut. And typically, I introduce our guest. And uh, our guest this evening is our book, Hacking Deficit Thinking, by Drs. Kelsey Reed and Byron McClure. And we have, as Rachel mentioned, enjoyed having them on as guests and talking about this book before. Um, but it's really exciting to have a book discussion and hopefully have some live discussion with you all I know for my graduate students, it's a busy time in the semester and people are stressed. So um, we completely get it if you're tired and want to just listen. Um, but it's a great book and worth um, worth picking up and reading. So um, I don't know if we want to, anyone wants to chime in. I'm happy to just sort of talk about the introduction and uh, kind of get us into the book. So um so uh, Drs. Uh, Reed and McClure um, talked to us about this book a, a while ago, I think just back in the fall or just before winter, um, and talked to us about some of the things that uh, deficit thinking has sort of this given us this distorted lens in the field of education uh, specifically, and as school psychologists um, specifically as well. And so the book starts out talking about what that distorted lens looks like. So um, so some biases that we might have about students, uh, particularly about minoritized students or students of color, um, a worldview that is distorted about how 
well students do or per perhaps um, what's wrong with students, um, focusing on student weaknesses, um, perhaps blaming the students and their families for um, the difficulties that the student might be having, um, and rather than acknowledging the impact of our practices uh, and broader structural inequities, um, we're focusing on what's wrong with the student. So I really found that valuable just to sort of challenge our um, typical way of thinking, right? And I, I know we come into psychology sort of through that medical model. And typically the medical model is what's wrong with the patient, right? Um, and so we do our series of tests or whatever, you know, assessments to figure out what's wrong with the child, uh, air quoting. Um, and um, rather than focusing on what strengths the child brings to the table and what they need. And so that to me was really um, beneficial in, in connecting with the introduction. For sure. And I just want to thank you for your concern because I'm one of those graduate students that you're talking about. Um, <laughs> I have a week left of the semester and then finals, but, um, but I found the, the um, historical context so interesting and infuriating um, in the book. And also I had to retake um, intelligence testing last semester and it's a really interesting thing to do as a school psychologist because when you go back to Sattler and then and, and current studies on IQ testing um, and especially looking at, um, you know, uh, differences in outcomes for minoritized students or, you know, just certain groups and SES issues and all of that, when you go back with, um, all of with the experience as a school psychologist and really look at what the studies show, it's, it's like really upsetting. <laughs> you know, it's, it's awful. And then, and you think about what's actually happening at work and um, how I, I, IQ tests were developed and yes, how, how things were addressed in little pieces, but also just contribute to the problem of identifying things about people that are, you know, below average or not um, normative. And yeah, so I, I found that part really powerful. And I remember when doctors McClure and Reed were on the, on our podcast, how they talked about, you know, Thurman and just the, just that history. Uh, it's just so upsetting <laughs> to think about but important to remember like where all this came from. Yeah, I think a lot of that was was in chapter one and I remember reading um, it and then immediately like messaging both of you and I was like, mm, because I get um, so riled up about, we've talked a lot on the podcast about this misuse of IQ scores and this over-reliance and, and, you know, kind of blaming the child that we, well, they're not learning. So it has, to, it has to be something wrong with them. We never look at, you know, what are we doing wrong? How are we teaching them? Like what, what's going on? 
Um, and so I was like cheering this whole, you know, as I'm reading these chapters, like, yes, um, all, all this good stuff. And I wanted to read because they provide kind of, it's on page 10, they provide just a, a definition of deficit thinking, which a, deficit thinking is a distorted lens focused on student weaknesses that blames students and their families for student difficulties rather than acknowledging the impact of our practices and broad, broader structural inequities. And I was like, yes, it's so it's so true. And a lot of the things like in there too, um, as I'm reading this and it talks about like, um, you know, starting under what you have control over and the, the first one being ourselves um, and that we're all contributing to this in ways that I'm sure that we don't even think about. Um, and so when I'm reading, like the book starts off in the introduction with just some, you know, it says at risk, low, lazy, unmotivated, not smart, like all this kind of negative talk. And I, we all hear this on a regular basis in IEP meetings. And we all, at least I know I've used some of those terms for sure. You know, if I get a certain profile of scores, I might go back to a teacher and be like, yeah, they, they're really low. And so... Yeah, I mean, we're all contributing to this and it's really started to make me rethink just how I'm so casually, I think we're all looking to convey meaning to the scores and, and, and whatnot quickly to other people and, and in passing. And so it's, you know, a, kind of an easy, a, a, an easy way to just, you know, get, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much information and we take the easy way out and just attribute, you know, the, that type of terminology to it when obviously that's not the full picture. And, you know, the book talks about how that's, that's not helping and we need to have a more positive spin. So I, yeah, I really, really liked the introduction and the first chapter for sure. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was my thoughts. <laughs> Oops. Um, yes. And We've been talking about the way um, school psychologists' referrals are just like gone like out of control <laughs> over time. Like every year it seems like more referrals and more referrals. And there's this sense that I get sometimes from the referral source, whether it be the teacher or the parent um, or the team, that that there is this belief that by identifying, by testing and identifying the deficits, we'll then have a reason that's help somehow like magically absolves anyone of guilt or blame um, that, oh, the child's not doing well because of their, you know, processing speed or something, you know, wild like that, um, <laughs> completely inappropriate like that. But, but I think that there is this like need for people to look at that data that we collect, the assessment data, and give it more, much more meaning. Like not only is it bad to start with because we're, we're looking for the weaknesses as we're testing um, all these um, different things, and then we're, we're assigning the weaknesses with the power to define the entire problem, right? So it's it seems as though, and I like the section where he talks about, um, I think it's chapter three in section one, where he's talking about how we can collect other kinds of data. You know, like we, we, we always collect data, but it tends to be, you know, 
deficit data? And what what if we looked at um, what's instead of what's wrong, what's strong? I just really like that point. Yeah, and uh, I agree. Um, I think you know, like Rachel, that first chapter because I'm such a IQ geek and testing nerd. Um, you know, it was it was really helpful for me to see that history again. You know, I I know we've learned some of that, um, but just even when I entered the field, you know, in graduate school in the '80s. Um, you know, we were discrepancy model was all we had for identifying SLD. And we were banging out IQ tests to see what was wrong with kids. And, you know, and that was our, I think, our mindset at the time was um, the IQ will tell us what's wrong, right? So we're, we're using that test to determine what's wrong with the child. And so when we think about historically, I mean, back when I was in school, I was working with the WISC R. The WISC three didn't come out until my first or second year of uh, practice, and all of the standardization problems that the Larry P case had were still problems with the WISC R, right? And you know, we we had the WJ and the KTEA um, uh, for achievement tests. I think the KTEA might have been brand new, and we were just looking to see what was wrong with the kids, and not even really, at least from my perspective at the time, not even understanding. Um, good instruction. I mean, not that school psychs weren't talking about that, but that wasn't really a part of uh, my practice at the time, um, what constituted good instructional methodology. So it really was, you know, what's wrong with this kid? Give him a test and figure figure it out. And, and I think in the field, we've really relied on that, right? Uh, wrongfully, um, mistakenly uh, really relied on this test gives me the answer. I think, um, you know, I think it was Ryan McGill who said, um, we expect that IQ test to give us a binary answer. Yes or no. Does the child qualify or don't they qualify? And of course, that's not what an IQ test does. Right. Um, but we've we've definitely gotten into the weeds with, I think, over interpreting um, to determine, um, again, what's wrong with the child. So and, and I've spent couple of years now, like with my teams, I've been at the same schools for a while now. Um, And so they know kind of my philosophy on IQ tests that I don't, I mean, I give it when I have to. I think that it's, I mean, it's necessary and important when you're asking certain questions like intellectual disability. Um, But there's certain cases where like I have to give the IQ test because that's the procedure. Either that's what's needed for LD qualification or um, the team wants to talk about a a classroom change. And, you know, we have this checkbox for, you know, to consider that. And so we need to do an IQ test. Um, And so, yeah, my teams are used to me kind of downplaying the IQ and those, you know, up, I gave the, this is what it says. Okay, I move on to kind of the rest of the report. I don't spend a whole lot of time when I'm going through things with my teams and I don't just put a whole lot of emphasis on it. Um, But even with with that, um, and I, I deal with sometimes with like, district level folks that come in to consult on things and they're always like, well, what's the IQ? Well, he all had an IQ two years ago. We need to update the IQ. Um, You know, so that's always, I feel like I'm always battling against this idea that this IQ test is so important 
and, and IQ and intelligence is important, but you know, that this is that if we only knew, know what, what this kid's IQ is, that, that this is going to change things somehow um, for the kid. And I think that a school psychologist, at least, you know, and that's a problem. We, we do that within our field too, this over interpretation and emphasis on that. But um, at least, I think that at least in most programs, people talk about the historical background that that you were highlighting, um, Rebecca and Eric, um, as far as, you know, in the book, in the verse chapter, it goes through the eugenics and um, the army test and and some quotes really that are really kind of disturbing to read as for why these tests were developed. They were developed specifically to identify people who were, you know, they felt had no business being educated or no business being in the military and, and all these things. Um, and so at least we go as school psychologists, like go into it knowing that there is that negative kind of dark side to IQ. And um, Stefan Dombrowski has a, that, that there's a YouTube video, we'll have to post that on um, the talks about the historical um, underpinnings of IQ tests and whatnot. Um, but a lot of people, I think our teams, teachers, administrators, district level folks, I don't think they have any clue where IQ tests came from the biases and IQ tests, Larry P, like they have no idea about that. And it's not something that we as school psychs seem to talk about. And I'm wondering if we need to talk more about that. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, it's a useful tool, but it has to be used wisely, I guess. Yeah. And um, we read in my class, many articles that just looked at disparate outcomes for different groups of students on the IQ test that had really not a lot or nothing to do with how intelligent these kids actually were. Um, So I do think, and that research is important. And there was a controversy with one of the articles that, um, the authors tried to reach out to some of the publishers of some of these tests to get the data that they used in their, you know, validity studies. And they weren't, they, they just refused to give it to them. And they cited some like principle that if the, if the researcher wants the data to like, um, like start a fight basically, or, or to create, um, you know, some kind of, um, controversy that they don't have to turn it over because otherwise typically you do have to turn, they do have to turn it over. And so I thought that was like very alarming that, you know, that the publishers can actually keep the data secret like that. Um, when, when researchers are just trying to learn as much as they can about these tests. So I do think educators, all of us, we should be reading these current studies um, and thinking about them very carefully. Yeah, I, I think we have to remember that these, it's not like they're nonprofit organizations trying to <laughs> help kids necessarily. They are for-profit companies. They are competing against each other. They are, you know, they have salespeople out there. I mean, you all go to conferences. They've got the booths. They're, they're 
trying to their salespeople. Um, and yeah, I, and I won't name names, but I know that we've talked to some researchers at NASP and whatnot that have said that very thing that you're talking about, Rebecca, that they've tried to get data from testing companies and they just don't provide it um, because it's they don't want to be open to being picked apart or, you know, that maybe they didn't use, didn't run the stats in a way that they should have. So they really, I mean, they put the bare minimum, I think, in and really the best looking stats in the, in the manuals. And to get anything beyond that is difficult. And they're really hesitant to do that. And so, you know, not, it's kind of like this, this idea of big pharma, like being, and, and I, know that there is like I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist that all medical people you know are out to <laughs> I'm a big firm believer in vaccines and <laughs> and all these things but you know there is something to say that there's a lot of money in in some of these things and I, obviously I think cog assessments to a lesser extent than, than like a pharmacy type <laughs> a scenario but yeah there's all sorts of conflicts of interest and we can't just take things um Right. And as much as we admire the brilliance of some of the original creators of these tests, like the, the actual scientists, the professors and the psychologists that are that are writing these tests, once they sell them to a publisher, they lose all their rights over it, too. Like and they are also um, not able to share their data, their original data and anything like that. So it's not that it's um, sort of like bad psychologists, like, ha, 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 <laughs> you know, let me hang on to my data. Um, it's just the system. And like, like this book goes on to talk about a lot of these systems that it's like these cogs and they just turn and one wheel turns the other and, it's hard to change because it's so it becomes so intricate, and so that the system in which tests need to be copyrighted and the publishers need to like take ownership of them and um, creates a problem for science for and for for doing the right thing by kids. Yeah, for sure. I I. Um... That's funny. <laughs> we're we're all chiming in. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me too were some of the quotes from uh, Brandon Gamble and Asa Hilliard, uh, that uh, Dr. Brandon Gamble and Dr. Asa Hilliard. Um, and I really appreciated um, Drs. Reed and and McClure in the their writing. You know, talking about systemic change and what what is this going to take. So directly relating to what you're saying, Rebecca. Um, that one quote, uh, it's on page 23 uh, from Dr. Brandon Gamble, um, stop labeling people with numbers, but look at what it takes for them to learn to learn what they need to learn. And imagine if that's what we were doing with our assessments, right? Um, not labeling kids with numbers, but trying to discover the, the hypothesis process of our assessments, trying to discover what it is the child needs in order to learn. Um, in order to learn what they need to learn. Yeah, I think that sometimes we get so fixated on the numbers and the system gets so fixated on the numbers. I had a uh, case recently that we have so much data on, on a child that we, you know, there's been no progress for, for like three years. Like, the, I mean, 
we've done all all the things. Um, and so the data is pointing to like, we need something more intensive because we're kind of maxed out. And, you know, so we've got team members agreeable, parents agreeable that something it's not, it's not work. We need to, we need to make a bigger change. Um, and then we often have these, like, yeah, these district requirements that, you know, people, oh, well, you, you need to update the educational and, and the COG and this and that, because, you know, it's almost two years old. And, you know, the, the team's sitting there like, we have all the progress reports. We have all the data from the IEP goals. We know where this kid is. We, we know their strengths and weaknesses already. Um, we know what the test is gonna say. We, we know what the numbers are gonna, I mean, the child is, is far, far from grade level. Um, and so it just can be frustrating to me that, yeah, we, well, we need a score. We need a score because <laughs> we were told we need a score and, um, to provide anything more intensive. And yeah, that just frustrates me this like fixation of, and so when I ask, well, how is this going to change? What, what, giving this test and, and knowing again, what we already know, like wh what epiphany is going to come out from this? I, I don't know. I just... It's like a pet peeve of, of mine to we need a score to need a score not not because it's going to actually we actually think it's going to change the, this trajectory here uh, but what Amanda Vander Hayden said what does she say it's something about um you know weighing a cow doesn't make it fat like if you keep weighing the cow like you need to intervene you need to stop assessing at some point <laughs> that's a great comment and yeah I I totally agree like um, you know, when you think about it, we're gatekeepers because of limited resources, right? So these scores all have to do with qualifying to get services, which are very limited, right? And so these processes and systems were put in place so that the limited, whether it's federally funded special ed services or state funded or, um, you know, so that kids, because there's a limit to the funding and the services, um, kids have to qualify in some way. And, you know, I think perhaps we've gotten beyond the, the original scope and need of providing FAPE for students. And it becomes mired in legalese and um, lawsuits and, and all these things um, because, you know, somebody has, you know, two points lower or higher on the threshold, uh, some cutoff score on a test. Well, let's just give the kid what they need rather than um, fighting over, you know, a test score. But because our services are limited, um, we have to figure this out in some way. Um, and it makes me think of, uh, um, I think it's Iowa that has non-categorical. I think we've all talked about this in the past. Um, and I think at one of our um, NASP conferences, we ran into some folks from Iowa Um and never ended up having them on the podcast. So maybe this is uh, fortuitous that we need to have some of these folks on the podcast and talk about what it, what does that look like for them? And are they able to provide kids what they need uh, without falling into the categorical special ed process? And then how do they test and what does that look like? That's so true because, yeah, I've wondered about that. We need to have somebody on there. And I wonder why other states haven't Unless maybe it doesn't work. Maybe that's why nobody else is. I don't know. <laughs>
I also wanted to point out, oh, sorry, Rebecca. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, that in the book, they at one point, I think before they go into um, kind of the IQ stuff, they, they talk about, you know, they're going to nerd out on some of this stuff. And I just <laughs> like that because we sometimes talk about we nerd out on the podcast. And so um, I'm, you know, just reading this book and I'm tickled. And, you know, I forget that the book isn't written specifically directed to school psychologists. Obviously, it's written by two school psychologists. And like, I feel like it's speaking to me. And so I'm just like, yeah. And then once in a while, there'll be a comment of, um, um, you know, a recommendation I think was in there about make sure you talk to your school psychologist and see what they think. And it's like a reminder to me that, oh yeah, this book is for a wider audience than just us. And it just makes me happy that people um, who are not school psychologists are reading this book and, and understanding, because I would love it if parents and teachers, you know, came to us and wanted to know our thoughts on things. Um, so yeah, but. Yeah, so true. And it's, especially in the section that we're talking about tonight, the humanize your data section, because, you know, quite often the administration and the system expects this, these certain kinds of data from us. Um, and they're less willing to do kind of universal screening for strengths or even just social emotional um, screening, which I think would be so helpful too, to, um, to offer kinds of prevention, right? So if we know, like even through an anonymous screening that we know that for some reason this year, third graders uh, report more symptoms of worry than you know fourth graders or than the third graders last year. Now we have an intervention idea that you know we don't need to know. Uh, we can measure sort of, what's happening in the collective, in the system, and not, like the book suggests, not place the problem within a child, you know? And I, I think that um, if administrators could read that chapter three and understand the value of other kinds of data, that could be really helpful for us being able to advocate for the kind of data we wanna collect. Yeah, and I've been trying to make be more cognizant about. Um, so I'm trying to you know collect more functional data on academic skills that a child is struggling with, and I, it's kind of like finding your your basil um, in, in a test that you know because oftentimes we can oh this kid can't do this and can't do this, but if you like walk it back enough, you can find skills that the child can do. And building off of that is important. And I sometimes, you know, we're in teams and, uh, you know, a lot of the paperwork that I fill out has a section for, like, what are the child's strengths, which is, is really good and kudos to my district for that. But sometimes, you know, I get to that section when we're filling out an FBA or a BIP and ask for strengths and everyone's just like, you know, there, well, there, there has to be something like, can they hold a book? Can, do they look at pictures in a book? Do they like, are they interested in other students? Do they smile when you smile at them? It's like, we can find, everybody has strengths and we can find some strengths, but sometimes, yeah, in, in this environment that we've all created and contributed to, unfortunately, education is so, we have to be cognizantly like thinking about that type of stuff. And how meaningful for for any particular student, if the adults around them were were constantly looking for strengths, like it would just change the water, you know, a little bit. <laughs> um, 
And I think when doctors McClure and Reed were on the podcast, I think they also mentioned the VIA survey, which I have loved for a very long time, but it's uh, a simple um, measure. It's free. It's on online. It's called values in action. And I think it's via survey.org or so, but if you look up values in action via survey, you'll find it. It's from um, Martin Seligman's work at the university of Pennsylvania, him, he and his colleagues and, um, and a parent or guardian has to, as far as I remember, cause I haven't given it in a, in a while because I've moved to Florida, et cetera. But um <laughs> but you, a parent or guardian has to sign up the child and then it takes about 15 minutes and they answer all kinds of age appropriate questions. Um, and then they get at the end of that, uh, rank order of their character strengths. Um, so they're taught, you know, and we call the top three to five, we call them signature strengths. And they're things like courage, honesty, appreciation of beauty, uh, um, a love for um, justice. They're just, they're, they're based in um, his Martin Seligman and colleagues, huge book called um, Character Strengths and Virtues. And in, for that book, they went across the globe, across cultures and countries and languages, and they asked communities what are some things in human beings that you value, that are important, that are admirable? Um, and they found that these 24 were agreed upon internationally, no matter, you know, education or system or culture or religion or any of that. And, um, and it's an amazing test to give and to share with kids because, and I, took it myself a long time ago and I gave it to my children at the time and my husband and we talked about our signature strengths. They can be surprising. You know, you might not realize that you have a strength in this area. So it's just a great way to help kids see themselves in a positive light and, and see their strengths. And I love that. I, I, I think just expecting people to come to a meeting with what are the child's strengths is so important, right? And um, when we're doing, as Rachel mentioned, the FBA or, or the, you know, psychoed assessment, um, you know, uh, really finding what the child's strengths are, getting the other adults engaged. And, and as you said, Rebecca, I think that having people focus on a child's strengths can get people to sort of flip the narrative on the kid, right? And, and you know, if we are focusing on, well, so-and-so is really talented at drawing or singing or dancing or, um, you know, they're really good. You know, I have kids every once in a while who love magic tricks and they're really good with card tricks. And you're like, where did that come from? That's so cool. And, and you never knew that, right? And those are the things that don't come up. Um, and I, I think uh, in chapter three, they talk about some ways that we can um, identify student strengths, having, um, you know, students lead the discussions, having students lead community walks. Um, and it, it made me think, you know, not necessarily within the community, but or prior to that, within our schools, we do um, uh, administrator walkthroughs frequently, right, where the admin come 
and you know central office admin come and meet with our principal and they walk through the school and why why you know why not have students be the tour guide and have uh you know have them feature student work and have them uh talk about strengths in their classroom or things that they like to do or um just spotlighting i mean i know a lot of it is to look at making sure there's teacher accountability and looking at um practices being instructional practices being followed but um, maybe we could start reserving some of that time for um, student-led, uh, strength-based discussions, and and you know it just there's a lot we can do to shine the spotlight on what's what's right with the kids. Yeah, I liked um, you know mentions of that in uh, yeah the third chapter, um, just like the simplicity of ask the student, you know, and there was. Um, along the way, something about um, a teacher saying that um, she felt that she got, you know, such great data from just, yeah, asking the student what they felt about their reading and, and what they were good at with, with, you know, their academics. And she felt that that was even more valuable than any any test score and just listening to the kids and listening. And we've had some um, guests on that have said, you know, sit down and listen to the kid read if reading is, you know, and figure if that's the, the reason for referral, like, you know, and it makes more sense that, you know, ask the child, how do you feel about reading? Like what, um, what are, what do you see as your strength? So I think that that's something that we forget to do sometimes. I know I definitely forget to do. I'm, I'm purposeful when I do my parent interview, I always, and I didn't used to do this early on in my career. I would go through all these different areas. Academics, tell me what your concerns are for academics and behavior and attention. And, you know, um, and so, yeah, it could be very, very negative sometimes. I mean, sometimes you have parents that, oh, no, they're fine. Oh, they're fine. Um, but to specifically ask, like, and what are their strengths? What are they good at? What do they enjoy? What do they like to do? Um, so I'm purposeful with that. But I think that I like that idea of asking the student because it's such an easy thing to do that, yeah. And I feel like you have a thunderstorm going on behind you, Rebecca. I'm seeing flashing. That's right. <laughs> I do, I do. I have a thunderstorm and I was making my dog bark. So I'm staying muted for a little bit. <laughs> Aaron? <laughs> um, one of the things that I really like about the book too is there are, at, at each chapter, there's a section sort of on how to um, apply what we've read, right? So there, there's sort of an initial, what can you do tomorrow? What are some ways we can dive in right away? And then, um, you know, next, what kind of blueprint for full implementation can we look at? So how can we uh, really look to implement these strategies uh, over time? Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's really practical um, and then they give like uh, how to overcome pushback. You know, if you're receiving pushback um, on this, what can you do? And so I, I think as we're reading this, um, it becomes really practical because you can just, you know, it, it's, um, you know, it's a it's a good read, but it's it's not um, it's not so heady. You know, it's not looking at a book full of statistics. You know, it's you can breeze through it and go, oh, this makes a lot of sense pretty quickly. Um, and so I like that it's very practical um, and you have that sort of, here are some next steps you can do right away. Here are some next steps 
um, you know, to really implement some systemic change or um, uh, sustained um, work? And then how can we overcome the pushback that we're going to to get through this? So, um, cool. For sure. And I'm thinking that many of you out there are listening, are tuning in, not live. And so you're not here with us um, in the discussion. But I really would love to know. I know we got um, a few retweets on Twitter and um, likes on the Facebook pages. So I I know people are reading the book and thinking about it. So we'd still I'd love to know. Um, anything that you thought as you were reading these first three chapters, like what, what did it make you think of? What are you noticing in your neck of the woods? And um, maybe kind of what's, what's one small thing we could take from chapters one through three to do a little differently. Uh, For me, I'd like to continue to advocate for some other kinds of data collection because you know, especially since the pandemic, I feel as though, you know, there's lots of areas in which we could intervene um, that are related to academic performance, but not directly <laughs> on academic prob- um, performance, because often the th- reasons that kids are not doing as well as they could, as well as we'd like them to academically our social and emotional reasons, right? And I just see so much of that in our schools and, and the schools that I work with and want to f- figure out how do we address this? What can we do? I was having a conversation re- recently with some school psychologists who were saying, you know, the, their, the feedback from their schools about how kids are doing is, they can't seem to sit still for as long. Their attention spans are different than they were before, you know, Um, and lots of theories. Is it social media? Is it technology? Is it, who knows what it is, but um, did we ever stop to ask any of those kids with those reported challenges, how they feel about being in school? Cause you know, when I'm really engaged and interested and feeling good about myself and what I'm doing, I'm sitting pretty still. But if I'm bored and tired and hungry and mad, I'm also not sitting still and I'm not uh, able to focus and just not happy to be there. And so I really want to know how kids are feeling in order to know like what I can do. That's such a good point. And I've been, um, playing around with my psych reports too, as far as um, I've been adding in a new section um, because we're revamping some SLD stuff and it's kind of has a heading along the line of like other impacting variables or, you know, along the lines of kind of the exclusionary factors and stuff for SLD. Like what else other than, you know, these test scores that maybe we have is, could be contributing to the problems that we're that we're seeing and so like some things that are going in that section are yeah what what your you know other hypotheses alternate explanations for you know just kind of like what you were saying that you know if there's social emotional difficulties going on if there's trauma if there's um hunger if there's 
you know, family issues, if there's, you know, bullying and, and so just anything else that could be contributing to the reason that this child is, is getting a psych report in the first place. And um, yeah, I feel like talking about that type of stuff is something that I want to try and do a little bit more of because then when, once we talk about some of that stuff, then, then we can do, you know, I feel like I can write recommendations and start to get the team like thinking about like, what else can we do? It's not just a, there's a low processing speed score, the working memory is low. Like there's this other thing and there's inattention and maybe what does that inattention do to like, like you were saying, and kind of, you know, just having those conversations good stuff and you know if we think about that oh sorry um you know based on many of the you know the articles that we've all shared and read and um people who we've interviewed we know that iq only accounts for about 50 percent of the variance in the achievement scores right so we really should be asking that really uh you know crucial question when we're when we're uh, assessing what are the other variables that are accounting for the you know 40 percent variance in the achievement and um you know and and what strengths and and resiliency factors does the child bring that that are supporting them i loved one of the quotes i don't remember whether it was uh dr hilliard or dr gamble but it was uh something to the effect of assume that every child is a genius Right. And and so they have the strengths, they have, you know, the, the genius inside them. And it's it's our job to sort of find it and help them unlock it. And, um, you know, it, it goes along with that uh, philosophy from Ross Green. You know, kids do well when they can. So if if they're not, what's interfering? And Rebecca, I really like that that VIA character uh, strength survey. I'm going to check that out. And I hope that um, some other people do, too. Yes. Do, do it with your for yourself. I um, believe you have the youngest is nine um, to take the survey, but um, it's really it's really wonderful to take it yourself. And uh, if you do, let us know. Maybe we could have a little via check in. <laughs> and Let's do that for our next um, our next book study. The, so so we'll all maybe take it. I mean, you've already taken it, Rebecca, yeah. but um, I haven't taken it. So I'll take it. Maybe I'll get my children to take it too. We'll experiment on them. Yeah. Um, and maybe anybody who's watching, if you want to take it and then join us next time and, and That's let us know great. what you Okay, and so next time we're talking about section two, which let me see where that begins, um, with uh, ref with the reframes four through eight, we can hack deficit thinking, build on student strengths, differences are strengths, tap into school-wide strengths, and educators deserve to flourish. That's so true. So yes, we'll we'll do section two next time, thinking, believing, and flourishing, which would be um, a great section to talk about uh, our strengths and how we can apply them to our own flourishing as yeah. well. And just hearing those uh, those um, titles and subheadings and whatnot, I feel like the whole book is like poetry, like the way that they just, you know, they have a way with words, I, I feel, the two of them. So it's nice. Okay. <laughs> Makes for a good read. 
All right. Um, I think our next, so we're down um, five, seven, um, and I haven't put out the link yet, but we're going to be talking with a neuropsychologist who is frequently on um, some of the Facebook um, message boards and whatnot and has been giving really good advice. And I know she has a private practice. And so um, we'll be chatting with her and that'll be exciting. And then after that, um, Dr. Faustino, right, um, Eric, I think you've talked to him. Um, we'll be coming on who is our president elect for now. So very exciting. Very exciting. Well, everyone, good luck in whatever you're up to this coming week and the weeks ahead. And we hope to see you next time.